So tonight we are doing chapter four of the Staff of Moses, uh, which is called False Insistence, the Us, in Genesis 126 refers to the triune God. So as you can see, as usual, we've got our copies of the uh, Staff of Moses book. Uh, what this is, is it's the World Mission Society Church of God, or the, for those of you who might not know what that group is, the Mother God Cult. Um, it's, it's basically, this is their, one of their like apologetics books. It's, it's a book where they, uh, They'll take a lot of Christian arguments and, and, and other arguments and basically respond to, to other groups, other ideas, to try to prove their uh, doctrines. So today we're doing chapter four. If you haven't watched the rest of the series yet um, and, and you want sort of a, a, a comprehensive uh, walkthrough of this book, um, we're doing a series chapter by chapter going through the entire book, uh, responding to their arguments. So. Uh, Steve and Kelsey, welcome back. It has been a while since we've done one of these. How are you guys doing? Good. How about you? I'm I'm pretty good. I'm I'm just glad to see Steve's doing hair great. Is still there. Yep. Yeah, I just wanna I just wanna you know be consistent with heavenly custom, you know, because uh, you know if if any of you guys have problems with my hair in the church, just remember uh, in the heavenly play, Mother's Great Sacrifice. <laughs> Everybody's walking around with long hair Boom. in heaven, right, Kelsey? Boom. Yeah, long, long and, hair uh, and robes. Whether, whether it's, uh, yep, and heavenly, they actually put the robe on to match the hair, but uh, uh, heavenly father's got his long hair rocking. You know, he's, I'm not Korean, and uh, and all the other pre-existent angels had their long hair. So uh, if you want to say that's uh, not heavenly custom, well, you better yeah, yeah. watch your video. Well, Steve, it's really no, no doubt that you are more heavenly than all of us, so <laughs> it makes sense. Amen. <laughs> you got that going on. Great. Okay. Well, um, that being said, let's just go ahead and jump into this, um, and we're going to walk through this. This is this this chapter covers some pretty important um, points, uh, some pretty important arguments that this group makes. Uh, if you are if you run into them like at a Walmart or or somewhere in public, some of the arguments that are made in this chapter. Um, they're, they're arguments that you're most likely going to hear um, from their their mouths, and so this is this is some important stuff that I think uh, you should be ready for if you're if you want to be prepared to respond to these guys. Uh, some of the stuff we're going to cover, I think, is is going to be really important in being able to do that. And I wanted to mention, I can't remember if we've mentioned this before, but I just realized recently, and I probably should have realized this before, that this this book is written by Ju Chul Kim. Is that right? I say he uh, licensed yeah. it. Probably, okay. I don't think he wrote it. it was I, probably I the... thought that I saw that it had him somewhere as the author. That is, is yeah, they do that all over. It's sort of the a place. side point, but but it, it just kind of struck me as interesting. Um, that I, I think, in large part, um, obviously he's he's kind of the head honcho um, in, in large part of the World Mission Society Church of God, and so. It's He's authorized the owner, yeah. by him for sure. It's authorized by him for sure, and yeah. also John Gilja, because like when you, I, I believe the NCPCOG has his like ser sermon books like um, available in Korean on their website, and like I, you know, not not maybe not necessarily for um, staff of Moses, but just the general sermon books like the studies about God the Mother, like Jerusalem Mother, Heavenly Family, Earthly Family. These are not located in his original sermon books, so they're obviously authored by someone within the WMSCOG and then authorized 
by Kim Joo Chol and John Gilja okay. because they're they're official church uh, documentation that we have to learn and and preach. So it's, it's definitely okay. authorized by them. In in the back of mine, I don't know if 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 you guys He's, have this in the back of yours, but in the back of mine it says uh, written by Kim Joo Chol. So I said his oh, name. Oh, there you go. I mixed it all up. I'm oh no! Dyslexic, in in Korean, the the last name's first. So in Korean, Korean it would be yeah. Kim Joo Chol, and and if you were to write it out, uh, uh, Western Western, for us it's Joo Chol Kim. Kim. I yeah. see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or Jill G uh, or uh, Jill Zhang, uh, Jill Jai Zhang. Jill Zhang, yeah. Zhang would be your last name. Yeah. Be backwards. Okay. Well, but no, they do that a lot. I mean, like if you look, if you look at the Secretary of State records you know you can see that it was him who registers the churches in the different mm-hmm. states like when they create a new church you go there and that's how i kind of found like you know they don't like to pe- members to know how old uh you know general pastor is but it's right there on the secretary of states you know i looked it up it's january 5th 1960 uh well he's 61 years old now so you know we it was on january the 5th his birthday was i believe it was uh uh, 1960. So it was January 5th, 1960. That's his birth date, and uh, that all that's on the, when they register the the churches. Okay. So he's 61. Yeah, I just I just found it interesting when I came across that that basically as we are refuting the arguments in this book, we're we're refuting Juchul Kim. Um, yeah. Alrighty. So uh, so I'm I'm gonna Probably do Elohim Academy. Yeah, I'm gonna do a little bit more. Uh, you know, reading through, I want to read through a bit more of this this chapter to begin with. I'm going to read through um, the first section, and we can just kind of go section by section and respond. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start with the introduction and and read through a little bit, and then we'll pause and we can just kind of make some comments about kind of the these first arguments that they begin to uh, make. So in the introduction, it says that. Uh, People insist that the us in Genesis 126 refers to the triune God, not the heavenly father and the heavenly mother. Let's disprove it. So then they read Genesis 126, which says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So here's kind of the main argument here. And, and if you haven't caught on yet, what this this is a, a big time argument of theirs to 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 prove uh, their mother God doctrine. So it says, who has the female image? Referring back to Genesis 126. If the us refers to the triune God, one of them must have the female image because male and female were created in the image of God. And then they quote Genesis 127, which says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then who has the female image among the triune God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, so that, that's kind of the, the initial argument. This is, again, one of their primary uh, ways that they attempt to prove that Mother God exists. They focus in on that, uh, that word us in Genesis 126, when God is in, in the creation narrative, when God is creating man, there's this uh, somewhat mysterious uh, word God uses when he said, let us make man in our image. So there's a plurality there that God is speaking of. And so they will use this then to say, okay, who's this? If there's an us that, that God, uh, within God's creation of man, and that resulted in both male and female 
uh, human beings, that must mean that there is both male and female images of God. Okay, so Kelsey and Steve, what are your guys' um, initial thoughts on that? Steve, do you want to go first? Well, why don't we, before we even do that, no, I think, why don't we, before we do that, let's let's look at the supplementary explanation. Yep. Because I think that really ties into the first yeah. section. So they, sh- they should go hand in hand. Um, you want to go ahead and read that? You want to look at that supplementary? Well, my internet's a little choppy. Why don't you read it? Is that, are you talking about the, uh, the end, at the end of the chapter? Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that ties in. That ties in very much to what okay. you just said. So the supplementary explanation, we're kind of skipping ahead in, in chapter four, but this is kind of how they conclude the chapter. Um, first, they'll say, therefore, it is wrong to insist that the us in Genesis 126 refers to the triune God or the Trinity. And then they say what the Catholic Church or the Protestant churches teach about the Trinity is totally different from what the Bible teaches about it. They say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, but they also insist that the one God exists as a tri-personality. In other words, they insist that God is one, but exists in three distinct persons, saying that God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are co-equal, but not completely equal. That's why some of them explains that the us in Genesis 126 refers to the triune God. So that kind of ties into that first subject in a sense. So... So thoughts on that. So Kelsey, what's your take on that? So so for this one, um, because yeah, when whenever I would like when I was a member of the church and whenever I go out preaching, and as soon as I show Genesis one twenty six, then God said, "Let us," right? So, like most general Christians would say, "Oh, that's talking about the Trinity," right? But the the WMSCOG they have a different take on the Trinity, which we're going to obviously get into. But one thing I want to point out with Genesis, because in 26, God said, let us make man in our image. So the transition to the next verse that we would use as members is um, in verse 27, it says, so then let's see what God made in God's image so we can understand about Mm -hmm. God who's creating. And then in verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So in God's own image, God made two images, male and female. That's why they're saying that um, if this is talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three referred to as He in the Bible, is represented by the male image of God, then who um, is the the female image created from, right? Because it says Mm -hmm. here, God created the female image in God's own likeness, but where did the female image come from? And then that's when they say it's God the Mother. But one thing that I, you know, want to point out and, you know, my preparation for this, this subject this week is, you know, the Bible says in in john it says god is spirit right the wms takes these verses as physical as Mm -hmm. literal right right? that you know all males were made in the male image of god which we call as god the father and then they say that all females were made in the image of the female image of god which we should call mother but again they're assuming that the male and the female is physical right that there's the they were made in the physical image of god but again well i think kelsey I think what they're assuming is that the image that what that word image, the image of God is referencing to it, it's, it's primarily referencing physical anatomy that, that yes. what the image of God is primarily about mm-hmm. is, is, is like sexual organs. Ultimately. Yes. I mean, if you boil down their arguments that they're basically saying 
the the meaning of the image of God, what the image of God means, what that means to convey right. is sexual organs, like whether you you have male organs or female organs. Right, right. And then actually, which is an assumption. Exactly, it's an assumption because the I think it's John chapter four verse twenty four. I want to say where again it says God is spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And so like. If, you know, God is spirit, then it's obviously Genesis one twenty seven is not talking about the physical anatomy of God, that we're made right. with the same physical, you know, sexual organs as, you know, a male God or a female God, but it's obviously talking about something else. So the first thing that really stands out to me here is that they're talking about that, you know, we're made in the physical image of God. They're assuming that. And that's not yeah. an assumption that's in alignment with what the Bible teaches. And yes. even and, and one thing also that I want to point out because in like in uh, correlation with this verse, they'll also show Romans chapter one and verse uh, nineteen and twenty. It says, "Since mm -hmm. may so Romans chapter one verse nineteen and twenty, it says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them.' So they would say, you know, everything about God, God has made plain to us. But when we see verse twenty, it says." For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So they would take this verse and say, okay, we can understand about God by looking at what God made, right? Out of all the things in the world that God created, what specifically did God make in God's image? It was male and female. So by looking at the males and females that were created, we can understand about God who's creating. Again, tying it back to the physical nature. But when you see this verse, it says, in verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, it's talking mm -hmm. about qualities, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen. So again, mm -hmm. ties, you know, in in alignment with the Bible, if Genesis one twenty seven is does not seem to be talking about something physical, like they're assuming. It's spiritual. Yes. Well, Kelsey, Kelsey, one interesting point is that if you look at, you know, how God created, you know, other animals, the beasts of the field and everything before him, you know, they were all like two genders right. too. So the very fact that he created man and woman in his image, it's not just tied to the gender because the animals had genders. Point. And, you know, he, he kind of created, the, you know, yeah, us in right. his image. Right. So there's something markedly yep. different than the animals with us. And it comes to a point like, hey, this is the, the crowning part of my creation. And and that's something is not just gender. So there's something identifiable in humans, you know, that's different than the animals. Yes. Right. And so it's if you take so, what Kelsey if you take what Kelsey said, it's like and you take the WMSCOG's argument. You would have to assume then that in Genesis, when God was doing this creation work, that he was existing with, again, with male genitalia. Mean, I'm not trying to be crude, but male genitalia right. and also female genitalia he, sitting up with physical bodies. You would have to assume that. And that, that seems to fly in the face of, of, you know, all that you see throughout the rest of the Bible. One, for one, you know, that scripture you just referenced, which says, which says like God the is Mormons. spirit. The more, yeah, and, there, and there's so many verses that talk about how you know the, the Mormons basically. Like that. Yeah. Well, there's another cult Sorry, called the Raelians, and they love using this passage too. So it, it's 
Yeah, I'm, so, I'm getting a bit of choppiness in you guys too. Yep. I'm just gonna wait to see if it calms down a little bit. So I was gonna say if you can hear me. So the so the Mormons um, they definitely look for this to say we're made in His image. It's definitely that kind of thing. There's a cult called the Raelians as well. Um, they kind of kind of go kooky and they say, well, the Elohim are these space beings who kind of, you know, panspermia kind of brought life to Earth. But um, if, if, if Kelsey, do you, do you have some more or shall I kind of give some thoughts on this? We go back and forth? No. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was going to say theologians have always written about the Imago Dei, you know, since the beginning. That's the idea of the image mm-hmm. of God. And they haven't always agreed what the Imago Dei right. is. Um, some thinks it means like unlike animals, you know, we have special qualities like a spiritual nature where we have rational and moral, you know, capabilities. Others have seen like a, a more of a relational nature, like the interpersonal relationship within the Trinity. And then others say it's, you know, humans have been created to be representatives of God, exercising dominion and stewardship over the rest of creation. But they've never kind of, they never said it's yeah, like a physical about, yeah. image. They've never said that there's we're made the physical image of the two gods. Um, the idea of the exercising dominion stewardship, like I said, one of those opinions might sound a bit funky, but if you read the passage, it says, then God said, let us make mankind our image and our likeness so that they may rule mm-hmm. over the fish of the yep. sea and over the livestock. So it's that thing. So he created an image. So that's the kind of idea of the, the dominion, the stewardship idea. So, you know, no one's, people have never agreed theologically that there's any kind of physical image being passed down from two gods here. So this verse has uh, nothing to do, like Kelsey said exactly, uh, with any physical image of God. If we were made in the physical image of God, you know, what would you do about the different races, you know, or people with disabilities? Exactly. Like, you know, to say right. people are born without arms and right. legs, you know, I mean, are they not in the image of God anymore? Yeah. If well, people no, are that, in a certain a- race... That's Are they a, not the image of God anymore? Well, that's a great point, Steve, because if you follow, again, if you follow the logic that they're saying, okay, look, God created mankind in his image. Okay, and, and so let's see what what was created. What did God create in his image to show us, to teach us about God? Well, we see male and female were created. Okay, so that must mean there's a male and female God. Well, take what Steve just said. Well, what, what else do we see within humanity? We see different races, different colors, different heights different body sizes does that mean that there's there's you know an african-american god that there's an asian god that there's uh you know an indian god uh that well go to heavenly um, play they're korean yeah okay (laughs) heavenly play they're korean so that that's like the image you see the the picture of them walking around on there (laughs) but i mean that's basically it so certain people apparently wouldn't be creating god's image you know, if you're born without legs or anything like that, I mean, you know, uh, well, it's like, you know, you and I are born in God's image, yep. but, you know, Ralphie over there, well, he's not in God's image because he's missing legs. That's not defining of what God's yep. image is. So, you know, um, I think what well, Genesis 9, 6 goes on to argue, you know, that the image is based on the dignity and worth mm-hmm. of man instead of his physical appearance. Because it says if you kill someone made in the image of God, it talks about that there. And Kelsey's 100% right. So when she looks at John chapter 4, verse 24, where it says, God is spirit, and those who must worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, a lot of Christians will cross-reference, you know, Christ's post-resurrection appearance with Doubting Thomas. He said, you know, touch me for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. So if God is spirit, 
and, and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, <laughs> yeah. you know, that kind of makes that part Man, clear. Yeah. So the, the, yeah. the big the big fallacy here is, is that they're arguing as if we're, you know, based on the physical image of God rather on rather on gender. And God is genderless. Mike Winger pointed that out really well in his video. It says you can use analogies up to a point, but he can't build a doctrine on analogy, especially with the Genesis 1 he goes into. Um, do you want to... Um, Turn to Colossians three ten, Jordan. Read that um, for us. I think I because I think this really clarifies like what the image is spoken yep. of here. Um, le- um, real quick, you know, I, I wanted to um, say that yes, I think I think like in my mind when I think about the image of God and what that means, I think about that human beings were created with this unique uh, ability and capacity to reflect the character of God and His nature, like. I think you could even sum it up by saying mankind was capable of manifesting the fruit of the spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mm-hmm. goodness, self-control, all these things that moral, moral and rational, rational judgments that animals are not capable of. Animals can't spiritual and, and all those things. Again, it's the, it's, it's the fruit of the spirit, which is it's a reflection of the, the character of God. It's a reflection of who God is and what he's like. These things like, again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and so god created mankind in his image again having that has nothing to do with anything physical it means that mankind had the unique ability amongst all the created creatures to to put on display the the nature and the character of god um going back to the verse kelsey referenced the the his invisible attributes romans 1 and so i think it's significant. It, there is great significance in the fact that within that, God did create both male and female. But I think what that tells us is not that that means there's both a male and female God. What it tells us instead is that male and females both together, I think, uh, uh, reflect more accurately together the the full picture of who God is, that that God has both female and male characteristics. And you see all throughout the Bible, you know, the Bible will uh, refer to God as like a loving mother um, or, or a hen that gathers her brood. And so the, like there's this tenderness. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. So there's this right. tenderness uh, that God has that is more likened to a mother's love. And so I think God created both male and female because it, it because both um because God has both of the characteristics within his nature. And so both male and female together kind of paint this more full mm-hmm. picture. He's genderless. He trans. Yeah. So he transcends gender. He's genderless. You know, uh, there's no reproduction going on there, but he, like you said, he has different attributes and characteristics where, you know, there's a different distribution among humanity yep. like that in his image. So I was I was saying like what is the image being spoken of here? If you want to read Colossians three ten, I think that's very enlightening on what this image is. You want to read that, Jordan? Colossians three ten. So Colossians three ten, um, Paul says, uh, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Interesting. So, so right, but let me read the verse before that. So verse nine. That's not a physical image. Right. Verse nine says, don't lie to one another since you have taken off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So I think that goes right along with what we were just saying that, that, you know, what does it mean to put off the old self and put on the new self in, in the New Testament? Well, it's this idea of changing your character, changing the way you think and behave, 
um, becoming a, a loving, kind, gentle, you know, all these things, self-controlled sort of person. And that is what Paul's saying in Colossians is what, what it means to... Which it lists in verse 12. Does it list that? Okay, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. So therefore, in verse 12, it says, as, as so the elect of God... So this is the God, idea right of sanctification. Saying, right. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, uh, <laughs> forgiving one another. Yeah, yeah. So right there, he starts going into basically like the fruit of the Spirit. He, he's saying to to be renewed in knowledge in the image of God, to become more in line with the image of God, what that looks like isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with male or female, but it has everything to do with the fruit of the spirit, with reflecting the nature and the character of God in, in, in this instance and in how you relate to other people and, and the rest of creation basically. And one other thing that I want to point out too is that again, I have uh, in Genesis. Uh, I, I'll go real quick. So in Genesis yep. one twenty seven, it says, you know, again, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The WMS like literally says the statement: All males on this earth are made in the male image of God, which we call as God the Father. Therefore, all females on this earth are created in the female image of God, which we call God the Mother. But that doesn't say that here. That doesn't say mm -hmm. that in verse 26 or 27. That's literally them taking the word male and then making a statement out of it, and then female making a statement out of it. But again, it's that's not what these two verses say, or any of the verses in or around it, or anywhere within the Bible. Yep. Well, let's let's focus in on that for a minute, and, and to kind of wrap up that last section, I just say to members, and and I've I've discussed this with members in the past who, when I said I'd ask them like, so do you think that the image of God is about you know like male and female gender and and, and sexual organs that that God has, and and they even would you know deny it. I don't think that when you actually press them. I think a lot of them would probably step back and say, well, no, no, I don't think that, but that's, that's, is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's so important to look really, really closely at these verses, Genesis 126 and 27. Um, Cause if you've listened to, I, I had a, a, a discussion slash debate in Walmart that's recorded with World Mission Society Church of God members. I ran into these guys at Walmart and, and I recorded the conversation and it's up on the YouTube channel. If you haven't seen it, I'll try to remember to put a link in, in the description below, but you can find it in our uh, channel somewhere. So in that conversation, this, this was such a huge deal that he kept emphasizing Genesis 126 and 27. And he said, he, he, he used the word images. He kept saying, look, God created both male and female. There were, there were two images of God. And I keep pointing him back to the text and say, uh, so let's just look at this. Genesis 1 26. Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Single. That, that's, that's singular. There's one image. Good point. There's an emphasis put here on the plurality of God, but then there's an emphasis put on the singularity of the image. That there's Genesis only ever refers to image, one image. Doesn't it never images. uses the word images. Never, not once. So now listen to 127. It says, so God created man in his singular own image, singular. singular. Uh, in the image of God, he created him. In the image, male image, and, singular. Image, singular. God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he created 
male Celebrate and female. Hebrew, and then yeah. it emphasizes the fact that both male and female were created in images one or image. image. One image. That there's one single image of God mm-hmm. that is that is involved in the creation here. And so to to say, which which I've heard members say multiple times, they'll they will literally say images. And when you do that, you're saying something that is literally it, not in the not text, in the Hebrew, not in the Hebrew, right? The Hebrew is uh, sel- the Hebrew is Selim Elohim. It's not Selimim Elohim, which is the would have been the plural there. Um, before we move in, I do want to mention a point though. Like, so I have a pretty good quote here from F. F. Bruce, who I've seen actually quoted in WCOG literature, but um, <clears throat> kind of you know following on the heels of Colossians three ten, we talked about like you know being renewed in the knowledge, the image of the creator. So like, what Mm -hmm. is the image of God? And the quote I have here from Evan Bruce says, when Paul speaks of the renewal of the new man, his intention is as much the same as when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though our outward man is decaying, our inward man is being renewed day by day. It is the life and power of Christ within that is being constantly renewed as the Spirit of God reproduces more and more Christ-likeness in the believer's life. Man has fallen and the image of God in him is defaced and is broken, but in Christ this inner, not outer man, is being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to conform back to our God-created original unfallen image. Yep. I think that's a pretty amazing quote. So it's this idea that man, again, was created with this purpose, this unique purpose. Uh, it seems like Genesis is saying to reflect in the world who God is. And, and so image is all about, you know, people you see in the New Testament over and over when, when that reference is made to the image of God, it's always referencing to that, that idea of sanctification or becoming more Christ-like in our character. Um, and so, yeah, that's a great quote. Um, what? So members need to think about this. Members need to think and not just take the church's word for it when it says image equals physical. It's like the church has never understood it that way for 2,000 years. They're trying to force this idea. And, you know, when you study the rest of the New Testament, you know, anybody who's in the church listening to this, just look and you'll, you know, do a little bit deeper study and think, hey, maybe it has nothing to do with the physical image. And then it'll start to click and make sense because that image is a inside image, a spiritual nature inside a man. And you shouldn't believe the church when they tell you that. Weigh it. So let me let me just read this this last section before we move into the Trinity to kind of finish up kind of their argument here. So uh, they have a section two, which is titled, Why Were Only Two Kinds of People Created? Um, so they say, if the us were the triune God, three kinds of people would have been created. However, only two kinds of people, male and female, were created by God. Why do you think there were not three kinds of people who were created in the image of the triune God, but only two, male and female? This this is some of that stuff that's like, man, this is, it's so crafty. It's like, it's so easy um, to answer, sleight of hand. Well, we've, we pretty much addressed it with, again, why, you know, it's, they're, they're taking the stance that it's physical, right? It's physical, so isn't it? Right. But, but the funniest thing about this to me, about this little section is, because they, again, they say, if the us were the triune God, three kinds of people would have been created. So the thing is, and we're, I know we're going to get into this with the next section, that the World Mission Society Church of God, they believe the Trinity is one God playing three roles at three different times. 
So they, they think that God the Father Jehovah is the exact same. It came in the flesh as Jesus 2,000 years ago. They're the exact same per, like person, right? Mm-hmm. So so the, so that's what they believe, right? But then they're saying, if the us were the triune God, three kinds of people would have been created. They don't believe the Trinity that way. And then they say, however, only two, kinds, yeah. only two kinds of people were created. Male and female were created by God. Why do you think there were not three kinds of people who were created in the image of the triune God? They don't believe the Trinity they, that way. <laughs> they don't, yeah, they don't even they don't even think the Trinity is three kinds of people. Yeah, they think it's yeah. one God playing right. three roles. So that's why when I I realized this right before we were about to join the call, I'm like, they that that's yeah, the explanation they give to explain why this is not why Gen- why the us is not talking about the Trinity, but they don't believe that about the they Trinity. They don't even right. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's a good catch. (laughs) Okay, well, let's go ahead and move on to to, to section three where we are going to talk about Well, they're just trying to use our Trinity argument against us. Right. Well, what they think is is the mainstream (laughs) Christianity understanding of the Trinity, right? What they think is. Right. Yeah. So section three is titled, The Triune God Cannot Be Plural. And they say, what is the true meaning of the Trinity according to the Bible? And, and so we're about to get into Isaiah 9, 6, which is it's a, another big key verse that they will uh, rely on. And so they say, based on the teachings of the Bible, the Trinity means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one and the same. So the triune God cannot be expressed in a plural form. First, let's think about God the Father and God the Son. Jesus said that the Old Testament testified about him in John 5.39, and the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be born as a child and be called God the Father. Okay, so then they quote Isaiah 9.6. Keep in mind, again, they're trying to refute the Christian idea of the Trinity here. And so Isaiah 9.6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father then they say jesus god the son is jehovah god the father okay so what i'm going to do that isaiah 9 6 they're pulling that section out where it's a prophecy that many people will say is a reference to the messiah reference to jesus but in that prophecy it says that jesus will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father so then they take that and say see look god god is uh, or Jesus and the Father are both the same person. Jesus is the Father. Okay, so this this is this is modalism um, to to put terminology to it, where it basically says that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they are they're all the same person. They just in, in essence they they operate in different modes or different. They wear different masks at different times. Uh, so, so at certain points in history, God wore the mask of the Father, and then at other points, He wore the mask of the Son. But it's the same person, just operating under a different uh, uh, mode. So, and, and again, the way they're trying to prove that is by saying Jesus is called Everlasting Father. Um, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand this over to Steve and let him talk about Isaiah nine six. One little point I just want to make about Isaiah nine six before Steve. Uh, kind of dives into it a little bit deeper is that when Isaiah wrote this this phrase everlasting father or if you actually look at I think probably more accurate literal translations it'll say something like father of eternity or something of that nature 
Isaiah had no concept or idea of this, this uh, God the Father as, as is referred to in the New Testament. He's, he's not trying to use the same God the Father terminology that you see being used in the New Testament, which was written uh, many, many years later. Um, and so to, to equate this, this word, this title, Everlasting Father or Father of Eternity, from Isaiah 9, 6, to equate that to the being the same exact title as God the Father that we see show up in the New Testament is just wrong. It's just, it's, it's inaccurate. Um, these titles are not meant to convey the same thing. They're different. And so ho hopefully that makes sense, but I'm going to, Steve, would you just take Isaiah 9, 6 for a few moments and um, kind of unpack that and explain why this argument of theirs just doesn't work. Yeah, so this belief is not unique to them. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church International are the big ones for this oneness doctrine. They call it oneness. They're oneness Pentecostals, apostolic Pentecostals. Also, William Branham. And um, some people have accused the local church of Witness Lee of uh, going back and forth, sometimes speaking out of one side of the mouth of the Trinity and then speaking out of the other side of their mouth as oneness modalists. Um, that's That's been a complicated uh, battle with a lot of accusations back and forth. But this oneness belief, like, you know, was early in the church, there was a heretic called Sibelius. And he proposed, you know, the idea that, you know, there's one person in, God, in the Godhead, you know, and he basically appeared sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Spirit, sometimes the Holy Spirit in three different modes, three different manifestations. Where we believe in the Trinity, a triune God was three separate, distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they basically say, you know, in the, the idea of the Savior in three ages. But we can get to that in a second. Um, so that's that kind of idea of modalism, oneness, you know, we talked about. I just brought some books here to show if anyone wants to dig in deeper. <coughs> excuse me. There's a, This is a pretty good book by a ex-United Pentecostal. It's, uh, but the thing I will qualify in this book that he's into openness theology. So, you know, he's got some deviant views on the Godhead on that. Uh, there's another great book by Eddie Dalcor, you know, on the oneness thing. You can look it up here. I don't even read, read the titles. You got them right in front of you. Find them on Amazon. Uh, then you got Cal Beisner. He does a really great dive into uh, the Jesus Only Churches right there, the oneness churches. Um, this is a pretty intensely good book against modalism here by Mike Burgess. Uh, and then a couple more. This, this goes pretty deep. David Reed in Jesus' name. Now, this is more dealing with the United Pentecostals, some of their uh, beliefs, not just the, the idea of the oneness, but also about the idea of being baptized in the name of Jesus only. And then John Weldon and John Ankerberg in their encyclopedia here of cults. The religions, they have a section on one is Pentecostal. So some good resources if you want to kind of look at a little bit more. But so what I want to explain a little bit is that in the idea of modalism, there's kind of two schools of thought, two kinds of modalism. So you got what you call um, static modalists, and then you got what you call sequential modalists. Usually, you know, people are one or the other in this. So static modalism would be the idea, like Kelsey just said, is like God is existing in one, you know, person. But at the same time, like in the Church of God, he can be on earth, but in heaven at the same time. And 
Kelsey, if you want to say a word about that, that just one idea of the static modalism. Um, and then I'll just, before you even say that, Kelsey, there's also the idea of sequential modalism is the idea that there's one person in, in the Godhead, but he changes modes like at different points in history. It's kind of like the Savior Three Ages again, where the Father becomes a Son, the Son becomes a Spirit. And the World Mission Society Church of God is kind of a mixture of both, which is really weird. Usually a group like the UPCI, United Pentecostal Church International, would be just what they, you know, they would be static modalists. But these guys are kind of doing both at the same time. They're static modalists and sequential modalists. They're two kinds on that. Kelsey, do you have anything to comment on that at all? Or just to basically give me a thumbs up that I've got that right? No, yeah, you're 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 spot on. I mean, the how the WMS describes the Trinity is like you said, it's one God playing three roles at three different times, like Savior of each age. But one other one little little piece I want to mention too is that you know the WMS teaches that you know when God the Father Jehovah came to the earth as Jesus Christ two thousand years ago, um, like God still existed in heaven, even though God is on this earth in the flesh, God still existed in heaven, and so I think that's where the the combo of the two types of modalism comes in. Uh, he exists. He ex so just to clarify, they believe he existed in heaven. But it, he's, it's the same person. He's just yeah, so it's, omnipresent it's really, in a sense. It's, it's, yes, it's, but it's really weird at the same time. Convoluted. Because it, it's, it gets very convoluted because that's what they say, is that it's it's one God playing you know three roles three different times, and like God the Father Jehovah came to the earth 2,000 years ago as, you know, in, in the flesh with the new name of Jesus, right? And even though God is in the flesh with the name of Jesus, God still exists in heaven god the father still exists in heaven and but at the same time um you know they they also teach that you know jesus came in the flesh as on sung home in our time right but even though he's in the flesh as on sung home in our time you know god still exists in heaven yet the wms also teaches very like directly that god left heaven god the father god the mother left heaven to come down to this earth to suffer for our sins but if so he's always been in heaven, God exists in in heaven what meaningful yeah. sense did he leave heaven exactly <laughs> so exactly so it, it's a that, contradiction that is convoluted yeah, it's, it's very convoluted, convoluted and it's a contradiction in their teachings it's, it's kind of not nonsense it's just like yeah is it one or the other <laughs> exactly exactly um, so they'll probably say it's both um, but again, it's, it's a contradiction in their teachings, but they, they teach that, you know, God is on this earth, but God is omni, omnipotent, omnipresent. God exists everywhere at the same time. Hmm. So, but yeah, he okay. also, again, left the earth. Yeah. And that's, or left and that's heaven to come down to this earth. That's the idea of the static modalism. So that's the static modalism that you have the one person in two places at the same time, but it's interesting that they mix it with the sequential and traditionally, you know, cults and groups that are modalists, there's one or the other. They don't kind of do both at the same time. So, um, so just in, in Isaiah 9, 6, so that's the, the passage where it says, you know, uh, that, you know, the, this child should be given, let me get my Bible out, but he shall be uh, everlasting, everlasting God. Father. So this is the part where they try to say, well, see, he's ev the, the everlasting father. Right. So if he's everlasting father, then, you know, he's going to, he can't, he has the father and the son are the same person. Yeah. So, you know, it can't be like, 
Yeah, so basically he says right here, like the United Pentecostals use the same argument. They say, you see, you see, he's, you know, the father, Jesus called the father here. So they're interchangeable. So, you know, it's that. Now, I'll just say, first off, the idea of calling God father is an Old Testament idea. Uh, you know, it's it's found in uh, uh, Exodus 32, 8, uh, uh, 32, 6, Isaiah 64, 8, uh, Malachi 2, 10. Uh, they do have the idea that the, the father, you know, is uh, in the Old Testament. It's a developing theme, but it's a definitely it's a relational idea. And, you know, when Christ comes and reveals the father in a different way as the son, you know, the begotten of the father, there's definitely that greater revelation of what it means to be a father. But I mean, it's not a really developed theme in the Old Testament, but it, it's definitely there. And just to- um, but in, in Isaiah 9, 6, though. God is, I would argue that this is a title. So if you go to 9.6, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I actually am reading the NASB. I should have a NIV since this is what uh, they use. And it says, The government will be upon his shoulders, will rest on his shoulders. His name, yeah, but his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Um, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. So they say, well, see, he's the father. And it's kind of like the one proof text they really like to use. They build everything like on that one kind of verse to kind of show it. And the United Pentecostal Church gets, it gets a lot of mileage of that too. So when Christian commentators look at this passage, they kind of will look at it in one of kind of two different ways. Um, the term is aviav in Hebrew, which I'll explain a little bit on that. So in one sense, they would argue that you know, prophetically, this is about Jesus. He would say that, you know, he, Jesus, in a sense, is our father, more functionally rather than ontologically, not as like the second, you know, the first person of the Trinity like that. They say he, he's like kind of like um, the father, the fatherless. He's kind of the father of the people. So in one sense, in a role, Jesus is, you know, a father to us. And in, in one sense, that's true. But I don't think this is the intent of the author. Um, so the other yeah. interpretation, I would say, comes from the original Hebrew, from the grammar, the language, and it seems to fit better where we would say, as Jordan said, he's the father of eternity, Aviav. And, you know, you might ask why so many English translations translate Aviav as father of eternity, but it seems to be like a traditional translational pattern among translators after, you know, ever since like Tyndale did his translation. It's kind of the poetic way, but the Father of Eternity is how I would take that all day long. Um, it's not a Trinitarian formula in this passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a listing of names denoting the Messianic figure's authority who's coming. Because in Hebrew, there's definitely, in the Hebrew mind, name it has to definitely do with character or attributes. Right. And he's listing all the great things about this Messianic personage coming. So that's it. So the, the, coming, the coming, you know, Messiah you know, he's shown to be human and divine, a son, a child is given, right? So his two divine natures are given here. But then it's also a description of his divine nature with the title, the mighty God. It's also found next chapter in verse 21, 1021. But um, I'm going to get a little more into the Hebrew here and really clarify this. If can you I guys ask, have anything else on that before we get into the Can I ask a Hebrew. question really quick? Yeah. So, um, because the the, w, the WMS oftentimes will make a point in their studies, especially with the King David study, they say, you know, eternal, everlasting is the same meaning, right? So, what's the difference between everlasting father and father of eternity? Well, I'll explain that in the grammatical construction in two seconds. 
Oh, okay, okay. So I, I wanted to clarify that earlier when I talked about the, like they didn't have a concept of father. I, I wasn't meaning that there wasn't a concept of God being a father in the Old Testament, but but more the, the way the New Testament kind of makes this distinction between father and son and, and gives this these distinct titles to both father and son. I don't believe Isaiah had that sort of concept in mind when he was writing Isaiah 9, 6. And that's more what I was getting at. And, uh, you know, when you, I think, Steve, it's so important that like to, as you're studying the Bible, to not just read the NIV, but to go and, and like, there, there's a translation that's called the Young's Literal Translation that it's a little bit confusing, but oftentimes you can get a little bit more, obviously literal, understanding of what words were actually used and, and to me when I like the difference in my mind between what what the the title everlasting father and father of eternity those two different ways of interpreting that that text that conveys different things in my mind um, when I hear father of eternity to me that seems to be much less about uh, again, referencing to God uh, as Father in the in the sense that the New Testament references Him as Father, in, in, in the sense of God being the Father of humanity, like our loving Heavenly Father. Like, no, this is saying He's the He's not the. This isn't saying He's the Father of humanity. That's not the point of this title being given to Him in Isaiah nine six, but rather it's saying He's the Father of eternity. So it seems more it's it's focused, pointing to like this attribute of. The Messiah that he has this 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 authority over eternity itself. Well, divinity. Divinity, yes. It, it's it's a it's a claim it's a claim to divinity because you have like twice in that passage says the humanity is emphasized twice and twice the divinity. So it says humanly speaking, it says a child will be born, a son will be given. That's kind of like the human part. But then it says mighty God, everlasting Father. So there you have the two. Well, Father maturity will say in mighty God. So you have the two claims yep. of humanity who claims the divinity. But then we're gonna we're gonna see something else really cool in this passage. So on the Hebrew. So, as I said, it's aviab, okay? So, you know, one of the things, you know, when, you, when I started studying Greek, you know, people stumbled around a lot and said, I don't know my English grammar enough to really understand Greek. And you learn a lot about like, grammar and participles and declensions and conjugations. And then you get really deep on the different constructions, paraphrastic conjunctions and, you know, all these kind of things, anacoluthons, polysynetons. You get really deep in the grammar by learning your Greek. And Hebrew. So basically, we forget how that works. So genitive, little lesson 101 here. So in, in Greek, the genitive is basically the possessive case. You know, we have it in English, too. It's a possessive. So it could say um, the, the Jordan's car, the car of Jordan, is basically the car that belongs to him. You can just say that of, you know, it's a genitive. It's possessive, something you own, right? So aviav is basically a construction that appears in Hebrew where... You have a couple of nouns, but the first one, father, is in the possessive case of the ending. That's how you can tell the case. Just like you, English, you have the word of to show genitive, which is possessive, right? So avi means father of, of is eternity. And you find a lot of, you know, direct parallels in the same grammatical construction throughout the Hebrew in other parts in, in the Old Testament like that. So... The use of the genitive in Hebrew is a very common way to express the adjective. Okay, let me say it again. So in Hebrew, you know, it's a, the, using the genitive is a very common way to express an adjective in the language. 
And as I said, you find us throughout there. So um, I actually reached out to my old Hebrew teacher. He's got his doctorate in Hebrew. He's real good. Did his doctoral dissertation in Hebrew. He knows his stuff. And we went over some of this stuff in preparation for this episode. And, um, you know, he pointed out like Habakkuk 3.6 talks about the mountains of eternity, the Hare'av. Uh, right there, again, it's the mountains of eternity are the everlasting mountains. It's a way you use the possessive to use the adjective. Remember, it's a different language. They do things differently. So the mountains of eternity are the everlasting mountains. Um, in Isaiah 47, uh, 7, uh, Babylon says she will be a queen of eternity. There's a gavret ab there. It's the an everlasting queen. So the, uh, the queen of eternity, same thing. Wait, everlasting Babylon queen. is the uh, everlasting queen. In Proverbs 26, queen. 21. <laughs> No, no, at Babylon claims, she claims that she will be the everlasting oh, queen. But it's basically the construction, the way the, the two nouns are used with the genitive against the other one in an adjectival and adjective sense. That's the way it's used. So that's the everlasting is the adjective, right? So um, in Proverbs twenty six twenty one, it speaks of a man of contention. Well, a man of contention is a contentious man. Um, you know, in Exodus 28, speaks of holy uh, garments of holiness. Well, that's holy garments. You know, the same thing is mm-hmm. yeah. everlasting father, the father of eternity is, the, you know, the father of that. So we find the same thing used again and again. Uh, it talks about the mountain of holiness. That's uh, the holy mountain, uh, Jeremiah 31. So you'll find this construction. It's, it's, you just can't look at the NIV. You have to get right. behind it. Remember, it's the, the, the strong understanding of this is you know, the, the grammatical construction where it's like the father of eternity seems to be the best meaning. So what is the father of eternity? Um, that's basically the idea that, you know, he's the originator of time. He's the creator of t- that dimension of time. He is, it's basically another way of calling him God. It, it's, it's, it's um, let me make sure Steve's not talking. Okay, it's basically, it's basically the same thing as when Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, isn't it? Isn't it kind of the same idea being conveyed that that he is the he's the beginning, he's the end, he is theologically yes, but not not, not grammatically, right? Right, yes, not, not grammatically, grammatically, but grammatically, right? The the theological the concept, right? And and so all all that what that says is that the 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 way that the the WMSCOG takes this. And, and, and interprets everlasting father, and they in essence equate that to meet the, the same sort of meaning yeah. as when the New Testament calls God Father, uh, as if those titles can be equated. And Isaiah's usage of this title, Father of Eternity, is completely different. It's a completely different idea than what the New Testament is conveying when it calls God Father. They're not the same. And so the interesting thing, though, is that to my knowledge, like the WMSCOG would never do what Steve just did in, in, in the sense of diving into the text, diving into the Hebrew, actually really honestly trying to understand what, what, is, what is Isaiah really trying to convey when he says father of eternity, rather than just coming across this verse and saying, ooh, this would be a good one to mm-hmm. refute the, the, you know, the, Proof the Christians, um, but rather stopping saying, okay, you know, I could I could put that in my staff of Moses book, but let's dive into the Hebrew. Let's dive. Let's look at other translations. Let's see. Is that is that even what 
is meant here by Father of Eternity. And it's very obvious when you actually look mm -hmm. into this that, that it has nothing to do with, with what they're trying to say um, it does in this chapter. And in the Old Testament, just a question, in the Old Testament, would the, the people living at that time, would they have mm -hmm. any concept of the idea of Trinity? Would somebody like Isaiah have, I mean, I don't know if this is piggybacking off of what you've just been talking about, but would they have had any concept? I, th I think it's progressive revelation that's been explained in the New Testament. But you could definitely see aspects of the Trinity here. I'm going to show you one right here in Isaiah 9, 6 in a second. But yeah, you know, you have, you know, the you know, there's so many parts about it. It talks about yeah. Proverbs about God's son. Um, the other passage I was thinking of like this is the idea of uh, Micah 5, 2, where he gives a prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And it says his goings forth have been from all eternity, Olam. And mm -hmm. that's the idea, again, of this is a divine person is just Messiah. You also see, you know, right. parts of Daniel about the Son of Man. Um, in Isaiah, I said, chapter 10, um, the mighty God. So there's bits and pieces, but it's not clearly revealed as much in the new, until the New Testament. It's progressive I think revelation. The, the, the rabbis were having a lot of interesting discussions about, you know, e even going back to Genesis when, when it, it references God and God says, let us make man, you know, I'm sure there, there were a lot of debates and different opinions and ideas about what, I mean, even today there are about what that meant. Um, and there, there's other places, I think throughout the old Testament where there's definitely mysteriously like the, this idea of like a plurality within God that I don't think, I don't think they grasp fully then. I don't think we grasp fully now either. Well, I think we can look back now and really see clearly in light of this progressive revelation how everything does fit like a glove, you know, where the, the Jews have rejected Messiah and they still scratch their heads on that. But I think, you know, when we look back at Genesis 1 or, you know, all those different passages, we can really, you know, Isaiah saying who will go for us, we can, it kind of makes a whole bunch of more sense to yeah. us. I just want to add a couple more points. So the idea of Avi, the idea of the father of, that also has the idea of the source. And, you know, like mm -hmm. the name Abigail you know, means the source of joy. Right. So, you know, it's it's like Abi, same thing again. It's kind of using that source. She's like the father of joy, the source of joy. Like Jesus is the source of time. He's the source yep. of eternity. And you'll find that Abiel uh, is uh, the father's strength. Uh, Abitov, the father of goodness. Abijam, the father of light. These are terms, you know, used in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And it means, you know, the father of light. Like, you know, I said, Abigail, the father of joy. Well, she's the source of joy. You have a daughter. So she's not a father. But it's the idea of Jesus being the source there. So, you know, whether it's the garments of holiness or the, the mountain of holiness, the holy mountain, the holy garments, you know, this is just the way the language is used. And it doesn't force you into believing in multiple gods. I want to show you a really cool idea, though, theologically in Isaiah 9-6 that a lot of people, this actually, I think, would show the, that there's more than one person in the Trinity. So in that passage, it, um, it says... Um, where are you here? Well, give me a quick second. Okay, so if we go to verse 7, it talks about there will be no end to the increases of government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold with justice and righteousness. Um, and from then and forevermore, uh, the they zeal of verse. the Lord yeah. uh, of hosts will accomplish this. No, but think about this from our perspective, okay? From our perspective. Um, for us, 
it's like the zeal of Yahweh will accomplish this. Yahweh is different from this other person in this verse who will grow up as a child. So mm. actually, you have two there, members of the Trinity right here in this made. passage, if you look at it closely. Yeah. It says, correct. So you have the this, this messianic divine personage who's going to appear, you know, who's going to be mighty God, who's going to be the father of eternity. But it's the it's Yahweh's different from this other person who grows up as a child, and he's the one who's going to do this. So you actually you know, have the two persons of Trinity yep. right here in this passage. Right. That, yeah, that's one of those places where there's just that, you, you could easily miss it, but you see, even in the Old Testament, like a, a, a plurality, a distinction being made between different div- seemingly divine persons. So so it's it's completely... Well, you have that... Let, Jordan, let me just say real yep, quick, go sorry. Ahead. Um, we're having a little audio issue here. But you find that in Genesis 19, where it says, and God raids down fire from heaven... And God, it's like you have the two instances of God there right there in uh, in Genesis 19. God rained down fire from heaven, I think, where God was on earth. It's something to that effect where in Sodom and Gomorrah, so it's like there's two there. Or in, in Psalm 110, you know, the Lord said to my Lord. So the, it's kind of like the said, two right. divine personages. And you're seeing that right, yeah, you're seeing that right here in Isaiah 9-7. So yep. can, can I ask a question just... Because just to make sure I um, understand uh-huh. too. So are you saying that, okay, so here it's talking about in Isaiah 6, you know, a child is going to be born, right? A child will be called mighty God. Obviously, this is speaking about Jesus. But then when you see verse 7, it says that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Is that where you're seeing the two persons of the Trinity? Right, right. Gotcha. Right, because there's a distinction because, you know, God is speaking how this one messianic personage you have, there's kind of like three of them there you got like the isaiah that right. like a triad of prophetic you know instances there you got isaiah 7 you got isaiah 9 and you got isaiah 11 you know the root of jesse so you got the three instances and also between that and 10 talks about like you know the mighty god but so you got the three prophetic parts in isaiah right there side by side um but here it's like this this personage who's different in narration, who's there's so he's narrating, but the mighty God, but it's the zeal of Yahweh, it's going to do it. It's a different person accomplishing this act. So you kind of got two persons going on at the same time, two divine persons, a mighty God and Yahweh going on at the same time. There's two distinct persons in this passage when you read it carefully. Right. So, and uh, so one other thing that I w- affirming the Trinity. Go ahead, Kelsey. Well, one other thing I want to point out too is that, again, you know, their stance of the Trinity is that. God the Father Jehovah is God the Son Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. is the same being, right? But it doesn't say that here. I mean, it doesn't say that, you know, this child, it says this child will be called, you know, everlasting Father, mighty God, mm-hmm. right? It's not saying that he is the same he, Jehovah. Yeah. It's, right. you know, so I just it, wanted to point that out that what they're saying, again, is not what this verse is saying. They're twisting the words around to make their point yeah it's not saying jesus is god the father in the new testament sense it's saying jesus so it's right to say jesus is the father of eternity i have no problem saying jesus is the father of eternity but it's it's just completely to misinterpret the passage to say that this that we can call because of isaiah 9 6 we can call jesus the god the father Right. Because that 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 has nothing to do with what Isaiah is talking about. Right. Um, so, 
Jesus being father of eternity is completely different than God, the ter- or the title God the Father. Father of eternity, as Steve already mentioned, just simply means that he has authority. He's the source. He's the, the source of eternity. Um, I think, again, this idea of Jesus is the alpha, the omega. Originator yeah. of time. Right. And nobody reading the Bible for the... He's originator time. And, and right nobody there, yeah. reading the Bible for the first, you know, if somebody's reading the Bible on their own, reading these two verses, they're not going to read it and come to the conclusion that, you know, Jesus, this this child, Christ, is the exact same as God the Father. Like, they're not right. going to come to that conclusion. But if they read 6 and 7 and also, the you know, the context, they're going to see that, like like you mentioned, the distinction between um, Christ and the, the the zeal of the Lord Almighty. They're going to see the distinction. Yeah, and that's that's how I think we should wrap this up. Is look at the New Testament where you clearly clearly see um, that there is a distinction made between the person of the Son and the Father. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, unless you have any more comments you wanted to make on um, Isaiah nine six, I think we could wrap this up. I just I wanted to look at a couple verses in the New Testament real quick. I just wanted to just restate again, you know, when people look at the Bible through oneness eyes, they have a template and they try to force everything into that template. They're not reading the Bible at face value the way you would in normal day to day life. They would look at John 17 and say that, you know, when Jesus prayed to the father, he was like, set an example. That's nonsense. I mean, you know, he's Mm -hmm. clearly one person of the Godhead is talking to another person of the Godhead. This does not, this is a massive problem for, you know, oneness uh, modalism teaching. Um, John uh, 8, 14 and following where it talks about, I am a witness and I, you need two witnesses. I mean, there's, you can go on and on and on about that. Um, you know, it, right. it basically, actually, you know, the church has never believed this oneness heresy. Um, it might, it might look convincing, but it's it's basically fa- really false doctrine. Go ahead. So yeah, I, I, those are actually some of the verses you were mentioning there that I wanted to look at. Um, so so just to kind of close this up to um, respond to this idea that they're trying to to get across that uh, the Bible teaches that God the Father and God the Son they're the same person that just operate under different titles or modes at different times. So real quick, and some of these they would probably have responses to, but I think these are at least worth considering if you hold that view where Luke 22, 42, obviously we see Jesus prayed to the Father um, and he said, uh, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So there's clearly here, there's a distinction between the will of the Son, the desire of the Son and the desire of the Father. And so if, if Jesus is both the Father and the Son, there are so many, in my mind, problematic things going on in this passage where Jesus is, uh, he has like multiple personality disorder, it seems like. He's a bit like schizophrenic or something. He, he's talking to himself and, and, and he has, uh, I, don't, I don't know, maybe it's, it's an exaggeration, but it almost seems like he would have like this split personality disorder where he's, he's saying, I, I, you know, praying that not not my will, not what I want, but what you want. But somehow he's talking to himself. Um, I, I just feel and, like passages like that uh, are just in my mind. I, I don't understand how you can jive that with the idea that Jesus is the Father, or that that's what the New Testament authors were trying to convey. 
Well, one thing I want to point out with there, because I can already tell you, I mean, they're going to use the same excuse that, you know, he's setting us an example, right? That he's right. saying, you know, right. that we should pray to God that, you know, not our will be done, but, but God's will. But actually, what the funny thing is, if you see a few verses before, if you see from verse um, 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Um, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you're, you will not fall into temptation. Then verse 41. He withdrew from a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. So he went away from them. If he was doing right. that to set an example, wouldn't he want them to see? But he went away from them. Yeah, this isn't the only instance where you see him going away. Right. You know, I'll talk about how he would often withdraw to to like a secret place or, or a place by himself yeah. to pray. And so, and, and also I, what this this might be sort of silly, but what I always say when members will, will tell me, you know, well, he's just setting an example. I would just say, okay, so the example he set then is that we should pray to ourselves. Like we should, yeah. we should, <laughs> we should talk to ourselves because that's what he did. He so talked to himself. Um, so, so the next one, uh, this, this is a big one that Steve just mentioned is John 8, uh, 17 through 18. Th this I one started I, 14. Okay. But, but well, just just to finish up on that, here's a challenge I have for you members who are, might be watching, is that it's just trying to make sense of the Bible, trying to solve and fit it with what makes the best explanation for the data there. And you're thinking that looking at Isaiah 9-6, that one verse that can be taken a completely different way, you're looking at that verse and saying, hey, you know, this is the best way to explain the relationship of the Godhead. Modalism, oneness, you know, by looking at, you know, understanding the Father here to be Jesus. But if you if you want a better explanation, let's look at some of the other parts. If you want a good explanation to really have it make sense, what we're going to read now in John 8, does that make sense? Of course, that completely blows away any misinterpretation of Isaiah 9, 6. You can't build your, you know, you got to interpret the clear things, the unclear things by the clear things. And you can't just build a doctrine on, a, on an ambiguous verse like that. That can be taken more than one way. And, you know, very clearly, you know, we have a lot of interpersonal relationship between the Father and Son and the, and the different members of the Godhead that completely give a lot more points towards the Trinity than you'll ever see out of that one twisted verse yep. over here. So John, John 8, 14, Jesus replied, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is valid because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone. I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. Even in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. Then listen to this. Jesus says, I am one who testifies about myself and the father who sent me also testifies about me. Look, he's just made this distinction that in the law, there's this requirement that in a, a, a court case, it, it required that there's a requirement for the testimony of two men, two witnesses. And now Jesus is using that to say, that's what's happening how, here. How that many? He is one witness and the father is another so if if Jesus and the Father are the same person, like he just he just pulled a real sham over them. Like he, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, that was really deceptive because it's like, well, no, you're not. He's literally saying, I am two persons. Like we're, I'm two. I count as two separate persons. 
if if Jesus and the Father are well, the not same he, person, him and the Father. Let's clarify that. Say that again. Yeah. No, no, you're you're kind of saying from their right. point of view that there's two persons, not from our point of view. Our point of view is the Father and Son. Right. But for you know, yeah, taking up their point yes. of view. Right. Absolutely. If, yeah, if their point of view is correct and Jesus and the Father are are one person then that would mean Jesus in essence just lied here. Um, he just misused this, this example to try to prove a point. Um, but I'm, I guess I guess the WMSUG is okay with, what do they call it? Uh, righteous lies or, or something Holy like lie. that. Holy lies. Uh, but, but the point is Jesus clearly is saying, you know, he's one witness, the father is another witness. That makes two witnesses. So, um, they can't be one. They can't be one person, you know, based on this verse and, and, and so many others. Uh, one, one last one I wanted to read real quick is John 530, where Jesus says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So Jesus here is making a clear distinction between himself and the father. He's saying that, um, you know, he's not he can't do anything of himself. Um, he relies on another. He relies on the Father. And he seeks not to please himself, but to please the one who sent him. Clearly, Jesus is making the distinction between multiple uh, persons here. And, and if Jesus and the Father are the same person, if they are one person as as modalism or as the WMSCOG is, is trying to convey here, then I feel like, like these words of Jesus here just become nonsense. They become, uh, they, they, they don't make sense. Meaningless. Meaningless. <coughs> so with that said, yep. um, one more, one more though. One more I have. Yep. Yep. Go ahead. I think it was, yeah. John fourteen twenty three. John 14, 23, it says, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with hmm. him. Hmm. There you go. He we. refers to him and the father yeah. as we, plural. I mean, plural. I, mean, I mean, it's like distinct, right? Yeah. Well, well, let's tie that. That's a great point. Let's tie that back to where we began in Genesis. Like they put so much emphasis on the fact that God said, let us make man mm -hmm. in our image. So, so their, their point is there's clearly two there. There's clearly two. There must be two gods. Well, here Jesus is saying we, you know, this, it's the same, same plurality uh, being emphasized there as, as in Genesis when he says, let us. And so be consistent is what I would say. Like, like uh, yeah, I just challenge you guys be consistent. If Jesus says him and the Father, are, he, he refers to himself and the Father as we, then you have to acknowledge, just as you acknowledge in Genesis, that there's a plurality going on here. There, there's multiple persons involved in, in uh, Jesus's reference. So in the last paragraph of chapter four, uh, before their conclusion, they say this, and this is, this is one last thing we wanted to comment on that's uh, quite <laughs> uh, interesting. So they say, let's trace back to the time of creation when God created the world, there were not three separate gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but God the Father alone. Then how could God the Father, who existed alone, refer to himself in the plural form using the word us? It never makes sense. Never, never makes sense, guys. <laughs>
So what's wrong with that? Well, so uh, first thing that's wrong with it is it says, again, in that second sentence, it says, when God created the world, there were not three separate gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but God the Father alone. Emphasis on the word alone. So the funny, the ironic thing is, is this subject, yeah, exactly, this subject is all about that the us refers to the triune God, and it's about explaining that the us is referring to God the Father and God the Mother. This is all about God. Genesis 126 and 27 is about God's creation work. But yet, it said, they said, when God created the world, God the God the Father did it alone. Alone. <laughs> so that's yeah. very ironic that that sentence is in this subject uh, because they they insist that God the Mother was there creating alongside him. And then that second sentence, then how could God the Father, who existed again alone, refer to himself in the plural form using the word us? So again, they're emphasizing the word alone, right? Their whole when they yeah, want when to when they want to. That's when they completely want to. against the whole first half of this subject. So it's very interesting that they chose those two sentences to add to but this subject. It's convenient for end. us. They yeah, kind of just sum, sum up our own arguments. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're right. The, God was alone by himself in the creation. But also... And it's... It's a complete straw man, too, though. The oh, idea yeah, that, right. you know, three gods, they slip it in there. It says when God created the world, there are three, they're not three separate gods. Well, who the heck believes that outside of Mormons? You know, we don't believe in three gods. The Mormons in Abraham chapter four, the God said, let man go do this. So, you know, that's just like a total straw man. And like I said, in, in John 1, 1 to 3, you know, the father's with the son at creation. You know, the son was the son created all things. Hebrews one ten, Colossians one sixteen and following. Um, absolute nonsense here. Straw man and the father alone. And uh, the father wasn't alone because theologically, obviously, he was with the son. Yeah. So, if, I mean, John, John one in the beginning was the word and the word was with, with. God and the word was God. All things were created. Didn't sound alone right. to me. All things were created through him. He wasn't so alone. God, God was not alone, but who was with him? It wasn't mother. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're just interpreting scripture with scripture. <laughs>